Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind. Let's roll. Let's pray for the Lord to do something special today by His Spirit because we have a special guest. I know you're going to be blessed. I've, I'm seriously blessed and been looking forward to this for months. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your incredible love for us. Lord, it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. You just come after us with your overflowing grace, love, and mercy, and you truly overwhelm us with your kindness to redeem us and rescue us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out and that you would speak today, Lord, that your spirit, your truth, your love would be manifest here in all of your glory, that you might receive the praise that is due your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to talk because of our special guest that we have with us. Uh, I saw Beckett Cook on an interview about six months ago, and he is a uh, was a for 20 years a gay set designer in Hollywood, and had come up through that lifestyle, and yet he radically gave his life to Christ, and now is walking with the Lord as a great witness. That's a this is a subject that's close to my heart because. My oldest brother was in the gay lifestyle and died of AIDS at the age of 53. And for 30 years, we, we would uh, wrestle as I loved him and prayed for him. We would wrestle with this ideology and me trying to stick to a biblical perspective and uh, him trying to give me the talking points of all, all the gay lifestyle. And, uh, but he got radically saved six months before he passed away, died in his sleep at 53. Amen. <clears throat> But because my mom had been married four times and my dad had been married three times, there's seven marriages. I also had a stepbrother that was in the gay lifestyle that died at 50 and a stepsister in the lesbian lifestyle that died at the age of 50. And so all three of them have passed away and uh, um, two of them from basically the abuse of their bodies and then one in a tragic traffic accident. But it's something that I, my heart... I, I love people in every dimension of life, but this is an awkward dimension that most people don't do well with in communication, right? You love Jesus, and you love this person. You just don't know how, how to bridge that gap. So we want to talk a little. I'm just going to lay, take 10 minutes, lay a, a brief foundation for biblical sexuality, and then Beckett's going to come share his amazing story, and you guys are going to be blessed. There's also his book, which is out here at a table, and you could talk to Beckett afterwards, sign, get a, a picture, whatever you want to do. The title of it is A Change of Affection, and um, he's going to be sharing about that. But human sexuality is a subject of simplicity and complexity. And by that I mean there's a simplicity when God's uh, description of what sexuality is, is uh, his moral design, his creation design, is very simple in its concept or understanding. The complexity comes with all the raging wars inside of each one of us that wants to function outside of that boundary. We go, Lord, that's a very narrow boundary. Come on now. I want to explore outside of that. He's like, no, this is the boundary. So the complexity comes with the emotions and the thoughts and the culture that pulls us apart from inside to where we finally compromise and we throw God's design, we throw God's plan in the garbage and then we say, hey, we're going to go with the world's plan, which is not that uh, glorious when you get to the bottom of the barrel and look at it. But 
in its basic uh, normative, which is, this is the thing that is under attack, normative categories of binary stable relationships are basically heterosexual around the world. Okay, men and women. Starts young, right? Like this, these young cute kids here. I remember having my uh, first, I was smitten at the age of four <laughs> by Jill. Jill went on to be a spectacular uh, cheerleader in my valley where I was from. And uh, the summer at the age of four, I had been injured. I had my, was riding on the back of my sister's bike and my foot went into the spokes and it shredded my ankle. So my ankle was all bandaged up so I could pull the I'm wounded card. And uh, it turned into a wonderful kiss in my grandparents' garage. It was an epic moment. That summer, I was the man. I had arrived. I had kissed at the age of four the cutest girl in the neighborhood. But it goes on, right, if your orientation for me, which is normative or heterosexual, and uh, you look at couples, and you, this is just the way it is. Men end up with women, and women end up with men, and this is normative. You wouldn't know that in the last three years where there has been a pipeline, right? You would think the entire world <laughs> either wants to be trans, or they're closet trans, or they're in the gay lifestyle. Gallup poll came up with this poll in 2019. Americans still greatly overestimate U.S. gay population. This is not a preacher saying this. This is a renowned Gallup organization. Americans estimate of the proportion of gay people in the U.S. is 23%. That's what people think, which is more than five times Gallup's more encompassing 2017 estimate that it's 4.5% of Americans are the sexual alphabet because I can't remember all of the letters in it, all right? Just call it the alphabet uh, um, following, basically. And if we go to another Western culture that's similar to ours in Australia, in Australia, this is a 2014 study, that men and uh, women had different patterns of sexual identity, although a majority of people identified as heterosexual, 95%, excuse me, 97% of men, 96% of women identified as heterosexual. I think this is where the conundrum comes in when it comes down to they, when they're questioned about experience, 9% of men and 19% of women have some history of same-sex attraction or experience. Somewhere in your life, in childhood, junior high, high school, college, at a drunk party, you experimented with the same sex type of thing. And what they do is lump that together with a 4.5%, and you see there's really 20% of the population is gay or wants to be gay. And it's just not true. It's not reality. But like these times, the last three years, whether it's the, plan, the pandemic, we've discovered that there's a whole media culture that wants to indoctrinate us with untrue things. How about this? I realized if I was going to talk about this, I had to brush up on how many genders there are. Now, you have to check every week because it changes every week. But the helpful professor at helpfulprofessor.com declared to me this week that 81 types of genders and gender identities from A to Z by Chris Drew, PhD, in February of 2023. And he starts with number one, and I thought I'd just give you a sampling because there's 80 more of these we will not go into. But <clears throat> this is uh, occult. This is called occult, not occult, but occult. Occult is a gender from Buddhist people of Myanmar. It describes people who are A-M-A-B, assigned male at birth, who have been possessed by a female spirit god named Mangudan. Who are you? Mangadong. Sounds quite ominous. 
who has parted, <laughs> imparted femininity on them. Occults are often seen as wise shamans and seers. So you've got your choice of 81 different uh, genders, such, I mean, we're so out of touch to think just male and female, which they say is your sex, not your gender. Your sex is basically your genitalia, and your gender is in your mind. But God's design is very simplistic. I know I'll talk about the complexity, and that is just the human fallen nature inside of me that wants to function sexually outside of what God's plan is. Every single one of us in this room at different times in our life has struggled with some version of sexuality, whether it was when we were just coming into puberty or somewhere along the line. And I don't mean struggled with your sexuality that you struggled with maybe same-sex attraction. I mean you struggled with your sexuality and that the Lord says this is the confining parameters of my moral design for you. And this moral design... Thank you very much for that golf clap. I'll take it. <laughs> but the reality is, is that it is a very narrow confine. It says in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus brings us forth, because of the question about divorce, but in a backhanded way, it gives us his, his uh, comprehension, his desire to communicate supernaturally to us what God's design is. In Matthew 19 verse 4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Somebody has to send God an email and update him on the genders because that's ridiculous because we know there's 81, right? The world would say. Verse 5, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has created, what God has designed by his design let man not pull apart. But that's exactly what's going on in our culture. Now, this was such a narrow teaching that it freaked the disciples out because they were hearing this teaching that you can pretty much divorce your wife for just any reason. They like that, right? If you saw a prettier girl, you could divorce her. There was two rabbis, one conservative, one liberal, nothing changes under the sun. One said, uh, uh, Rabbi Shammai, said that basically it's only for sexual unfaithfulness and adultery should you get a divorce. But uh, Rabbi Hillel said pretty much any reason you come up with is good enough. And which one do you think men wanted to go with? Right? They're just anything. And so they said, well, if, if this is the case, if it's this narrow, Lord, if your human sexual description and boundaries and goal and target for the child of God is so narrow, then it's better not to get married. And he goes, well, okay. If you think you can live the celibate life, and then he describes this, the basic three different areas that, or people that decide to be celibate. In verse 12 it says, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. A eunuch not functioning sexually, and he's talking to men, so this can go either way. Obviously girls are not castrated in an eunuch type of way, but you make that decision. And he says, basically there are those who are born eunuchs, they're asexual. They come into this world and they really just have no desire, right? I know, I, I know two friends out of all these years of being a Christian, 40 years, I know two Christian friends that are asexual and they were just born that way. They have no need. They don't want the drama. They just love Jesus and they're very comfortable being single, right? That's just who they are. But that is the exception, not the rule, right? And 
He says, then there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. In that old culture, they would literally castrate a man to function in a household where the wife or women were so that there would never be any sexual adultery or impropriety because they simply are unable. And then there were eunuchs who were made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, and he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So like Paul the Apostle and Barnabas and this group of individuals, they just said, you know what? We... We could be married. We have the right to be married. All the apostles, the other apostles, were married. Uh, Peter has a wife, and the various, you know, they, they travel with their, their spouses, and they have children. But Paul said, if I'm not married, I can just solely focus on God's kingdom, but I have self-control. I have, I, I'm able to contain my sexuality so that I don't need that to live in sin. So think about how narrow that is, you guys in a pluralistic society, in a sexual sat- saturated society that says, do you know how you can express your sexuality and still be in harmony with God's will? A man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. The end, well, <clears throat> or live a celibate life. You're like, wait, that takes a lot of options off the table. Right, those who are married you will struggle with your sexuality that you may be tempted outside the marriage into adulterous relationships. And those who are single are tempted into sexual relationships without marriage. If you're single and in sexual uh, relationship, it's fornication. If you're married and get involved in an extra sexual relationship, it's adultery. And so everything basically, touch- and then we have homosexuality and lesbianism and all those things. They're all outside the target. Now this is simply unacceptable to a sex-crazed world because everybody wants all their options open. Since it's so narrow, and this is God's plan, even when Paul the Apostle is talking to the Christians in Corinth, which was the most perverse city in the Mediterranean, if you wanted to insult somebody, you called them a Corinthian, which meant you were a sexual pervert and you're a drunk. That's what it meant. You were, they had plays, ancient plays, and whoever was the drunk or the sexual pervert in the play, in the script, here's the Corinthian. They had a thousand temple prostitutes that came down. They had shaved heads. How do you know a prostitute? How do you pick out a female prostitute? Her head is shaved. And they would prostitute, and they would make all the money, and they would take it to their temple, Aphrodite, which is on the Acropolis. If you go to Corinth today, which I've been there, and the, the temple was up on the Acropolis. It was a sex-saturated town. And so this is what Paul the Apostle says in this town. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, he says, Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul the Apostle says, you know what? If you want to avoid sexual immorality and please God, then get involved, then you, you need to have a husband-wife relationship, and then you need to be giving yourself to each other. This is the weirdest thing, you guys. You, sin turns everything upside down. I counseled people for 30 years, and all the single people were having sex, and I would say, the Lord says you're outside of God's will. You need to repent. And all the married people were not having sex. I'm like, the Lord says you should be having sex. You're outside of God's will. It's like inverted. It's like, <laughs> that's just what sin does. And I'm like, you married people should be knocking yourself out. You single people should be knocking it off. What's the problem? There's the, it's just not that complicated, you guys. It, it's just not that complicated. 
But then Paul the Apostle says, well, if you live in Corinth and you don't want to get married, once again, he echoes what Jesus said, celibacy, he says in verse 6, but I say, this is a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, which meant single, but each one has his own gift from God. He had a gift from God to be single, to be celibate, one in this manner and another in that, but I say to you, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. Stay single. You can serve God with all your heart. But if they cannot exercise self-control sexually, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's plan. Then we have all the passages, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that talk about homosexuality and various things that are outside of that, the, the, the gay world of sexuality, and the expression of that. And the reality is, you guys, is that my heterosexual sin had to be repented of. And somebody, if they're in the, the gay lifestyle, they have to repent. There's no worse or better or better or worse. It's, it's all sin, right? Anything outside this narrow. Think about how narrow that target is. It's a very narrow target. So the complexity is my human desires with my, my fallen nature. The Bible, this is the definition of sin. All of sin. Uh, uh, <laughs> we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each going his own way. What's sin? Just doing your own thing and forgetting. You know, God, I don't want to do it your way. I'm just going to do it my own way. He says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fortunately, Jesus came to rescue us, forgive us, redeem us, and then empower us to bring us into God's will. To write his word on our hearts internally, not externally, so that we actually have an inward desire for the first time in our life to please God. Coming from a different angle is Beckett Cook who his story to me, because of where he arrived through that process, you guys, is very unusual. Because not many people come out of the gay lifestyle and declare God's plan and say, this is what pleases God. Most compromise somewhere in their ideology and their theology and bring together a culture that is far from God and a Christianity, and we now have half the church in America that is not only whole denominations embracing homosexuality as normative, but ordaining the pastors who are preaching it. We live in unusual times. And I know, as he is my new friend, by the end of this, he's gonna be your new friend. Please welcome, and give him a warm welcome, Beckett Cook. 13 and a half years ago, I was a gay man living in West Hollywood, and I was an atheist. But then I had a very unexpected encounter with God, which completely transformed my entire life. But before we get to that, let's go back to the beginning. When I was very young, fifth or sixth grade, I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex, which is a very alarming thing to happen, especially back in the 80s when homosexuality was very much frowned upon, to say the least, especially in Dallas, Texas, where I was raised. And especially, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And according to my, the church, according to my family, according to my peers, my classmates, homosexuality was very taboo. Uh, not so much today. So, I, so I, it was a very strange feeling to have these kind of unwanted feelings. And 
so I led sort of this double life, because in, in, in elementary school and into high school, I, I went steady with girls. I dated girls in high school. But internally, I knew I wasn't attracted to them. It was just a social thing. So I was kind of like having this, this almost like schizophrenia of, you know, this double life. I had this secret internal life and this, um, and then this kind of social persona on the outside. And it wasn't until I got into high school, I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school, and when I was a junior, I met a sophomore, and we became, we ended up becoming best friends. And one night we were out at this club, and we came out to each other. And that, that just shifted everything into high gear. That was like, okay, the, just the floodgates opened. And uh, we, we started going to, it, it, we started going to gay bars. We started going to nightclubs together. I was 15, he was 14. And I remember the first time I went to, to this nightclub, it was called the Stark Club, designed by the famous French designer, Philippe Stark. And it was, it was, it was very beautiful, this place, very very nice. And I walked in, and the Star Club wasn't a gay bar, per se, but there were, there were gays, there were straight people, there were drag queens, there were transsexuals. It was just a whole mix of kind of artists and societal misfits, right? And the music was amazing. And I, I remember walking in and seeing all of these people. And I, the, first, the, the first two people I saw were these two guys, I think they were brothers, they had shaved heads and were wearing long robes with, with big crucifixes around <laughs> their necks. And I was like, wow, these are my people. Um, and I just felt like this is, these people get what I'm going through. And so I felt so, I, it was like, finally, I'm, I'm with people who get me. And so in school, I was very popular, very social, and I, you know, I would go to, to proms with girls and to debutante balls in Dallas. Debutante things are very big in Texas. And, um, and I would go to Christmas balls and all these things with these girls. But then after the, those dates were over, I, my best friend and I would sneak off and go to the gay bars downtown. And so I was pretty precocious. And part of that was because my, I was the youngest of eight kids, and my parents were too exhausted to care about where I was at all hours of the night. It didn't even know. They didn't even notice where I was. So, because I was making such good grades at school, they didn't, they didn't really care, or they didn't know. But, um, and so, it was very, very nice to have that best friend in high school, to have a confidant, to have someone I could share all of this kind of secret information with, to explore gay culture with, to, to have these experiences with. And, and then in I went away to college and the same thing happened. I ended up becoming, of course, the, the day one, I became friends with this guy in college. A month, few months later, we came out to each other. It was a whole thing. And, and it, again, it was nice to have somebody to, to talk to because I was, I was very much closeted in high school and college. No one really knew except a few people. And so it was nice to have a, the best friend that I could talk to. 
And again, we, in college, my best friend and I, we explored gay culture. We went out to bars. We, uh, we, you know, we talked about homosexuality. We talked about our feelings all the time. And then <clears throat> after college, but at this whole time, I never thought homosexuality was kind of a permanent thing with me. I thought, oh, this is just like what I'm feeling now. The heart wants what it wants, like as Emily Dickinson said. Like, this is what I'm feeling now. This will eventually pass, and I'll get married to a woman, have a family, and, you know, this is just what I'm feeling now. And I'm going to go with these desires. Um, And I, uh, but it wasn't until after college that homosexuality became my full-blown identity. And the way that happened is my, I, I, I was, Enroll, I was accepted into law school and to dental school, which is a weird combo. But, um, <laughs> but that's another long story. But I, uh, my friend also was, was going to go to law school. And he said, why don't we just move to Tokyo and figure this out? Like, let's just go to Tokyo for a year. It's like, yeah, go to Japan. That's where you get the answers for life. And so, <laughs> I, uh, so we, we went to Tokyo to teach English for a year, and, um, and that, while, while we were living in Japan, uh, kind of eight months into the, the time we were there, his friend from Texas came to visit us and stayed with us for a week, this guy Adam, and he stayed with us, uh, I think five days actually, and by the time, by the end of his stay, we, Adam and I, had fallen in love. And it was the first time I had ever felt that kind of experience, that romantic experience. And, and, and we got into a relationship. And that's when, uh, that's when I was like, okay, this is who I am. This is my identity. I'm gay. I don't care who knows. And I was emboldened to tell everyone. I told all my friends, my family. Actually, my, my sister when I was in Tokyo, wrote me a letter asking if I was gay. And because she had her suspicions for a while, and I, and I wrote her this long letter back, and I said yes, and I explained everything to her, and I said, P.S., please don't tell mom and dad. I'll tell them when I get home. And, of course, she told them the second she opened the letter, <laughs> which I actually was happy about because it, it kind of, I didn't have to do the heavy lifting when I got home. So... So I, once Adam and I were in a relationship, I just felt like this is immutable. This will never change. This is who I am. I mean, I'm all in. I'm all in on this. So I get back to Dallas in December. <clears throat> and so my parents already knew. My, and my, my parents and all of my siblings are Christians. Um, and they all... And I, and I knew what they believed. I mean, they all believe that homosexual behavior is sinful. So my parents, when I got home, the night I, I walked into the, the kitchen, my mother was sitting at the kitchen table, and she starts crying. I was very, very close to my mother. Surprise. And, um, <laughs> and not so close with my father. Surprise. And so anyway, uh, my mother starts crying, and... I knew why she was crying, and I said, Mom, what's, what's wrong? And she said, I, I heard you're homosexual, and, 
And I said, Mom, don't worry about it. This is just who I am. It's not a big deal. And she was terrified of AIDS. And I was too. I mean, this was like 1993. It was a terror. I mean, this was a terror. In high school, I mean, it was crazy. Like in the 80s, you know, it was, it was like, it was a death sentence. Um, and so it was scary, very scary, heady times. And so my, I just tried to allay her fears. And then the next day, she was so loving about it. My, my mother was just so loving to me. And, um, and my father was too, which I so appreciate because that moment is so important. Like when a child comes out to the parents, it's such a, you remember that moment for the rest of your life, how your parents respond to it. And they were so, so loving to me, even though, even though they were extremely strong Christians and believed very strongly that it was a sin. So the next day my dad comes up to me and he says, hey, Beck, I heard you're homosexual and, you know, is there anything I did wrong? And he listed a few things as, you know, like that he could have done wrong as a father. And I said, no, dad, it's not your fault. This is just who I am. It's not a big deal. But it turns out it's actually probably was his fault. But anyway, I won't, I won't blame him. He's in heaven now. He doesn't care. Um, and so is my mom. And then, you know, three weeks, two weeks before law school started, I was going to go to law school. And then two weeks before, I had my classes. I was enrolled. My dad was a lawyer. And I said, uh, Dad, I'm moving to L.A., and to be an, uh, a writer and an actor. And he was like, huh? <laughs> he was so confused by that. Um, but again, because I was the youngest of eight, he, it was just like, okay. He just kind of just shrugged his shoulders. It was like, I would do whatever you want. And um, <laughs> actually I was, my, my brother, so my brother, uh, Damien, who uh, was, when he, I think when he went off to college, he became an evangelical Christian. And he, so he came home, uh, he, he was much older, than, he's one of my older brothers. And uh, when he came out, when he, my brother came out as evangelical Protestant, that was way more traumatic for my parents, <laughs> way more for my Roman Catholic parents than for me to come out as gay. I'm telling you, it was like, it was, it was very, like, screaming, pots and pans flying. Um, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. So, I get to L.A., and I have already this built-in group of friends, because my, my best friends from high school, a few of my best friends from high school, had gone to Princeton and Brown and Harvard, and they had all moved west with their whole crew of friends, and they were all in the business. They were all actors, writers, producers, directors. And so I already had this whole set of friends that were, and they were all hilarious. And they were some gay, some straight. And we all wanted the same things. We, wanted, we all wanted three things in life. To make it big in Hollywood, which, which they were doing. Like they were just becoming extremely successful. And, uh, and then... To, the second thing was to find true love, which we were all looking for love in all the wrong places. And um, I went through, a, I cycled through five serious boyfriends, live-in boyfriends over the years. I was basically married and divorced five times. That's how intense these relationships were. And 
And then we wanted to have, the third thing was extraordinary experiences. And because that's what we thought life was all about, is having these amazing experiences. And we were having them in spades because all my friends were in the business. We were always invited to movie premieres every week and to the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, the after parties, the Vanity Fair party, the HBO parties, the uh, Governor's Ball after the Oscars where I had dinner with Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, and a bunch of other people. And I was just, I was constantly invited to these things and having these experiences and meeting everyone and, and going to Prince's house where he performed a concert in his backyard for three hours in Benedict Canyon. And, and I, this was kind of, you know, this was my life. I was just like constantly surrounded by shiny objects, having sort of the time of my life. Um, and God was never mentioned. In my friend group, God was never once mentioned. We just, God, it was just assumed. We didn't have to even say it. It was just, it, we just knew that God didn't exist and that the Bible was just an ancient myth like any other ancient myth. So we never talked about God. And then over the years, I wanted to know the meaning of life. I mean, I think kind of everyone does, but I, I didn't know how to figure out the meaning, how to find the meaning of life. Because God was not an option for me because I was gay. So I knew Christianity was just off the table. God was off the table. So I looked for, I looked for meaning in, in a few, several places, but a couple of them. One of them was art. I, art was my religion. So whenever I'd go to New York or Paris or London, I would spend every day in museums. Just the MoMA, the Whitney, and uh, the new museum in New York, or Noya Gallery, the Tate Modern in London. I was obsessed with the, the uh, Pompidou Center in Paris. I was very obsessed with. And art was kind of like my, it was my, um, I remember this, I just remember this in Paris at the Pompidou Center, this is how crazy I was. France, I think it was Franz Klein. There was an exhibition of Franz Klein, and it was what the exhibition was. And this is, this is how it blew my mind. It was three adjacent art galleries with painted white walls. And that was it. It was just empty galleries with white walls. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> Kind of was brilliant, but so I was, I was, that was my, that kind of gave me meaning in life a little bit. And then I also looked for it and I would go to serious plays in New York and London every time I was there. I literally every night I would go to a different uh, play by playwrights like Tom Stoppard, Eugene O'Neill, Harold Pinter, Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, which is a six hour play in two parts. It's a gay, it's a, the, the subtitle of his play is A Gay Fantasia with Political Themes. It's literally like his, but I saw the first part in London and the second part in New York. And um, uh, the play is literally just, I don't know if you've seen it, they, HBO made a series out of it uh, um, years ago. And, 
it's literally just gibberish, the whole play. I, now, I mean, before I thought it was so profound, and now I, I see it now, and I'm like, this is literally just gibberish. There's nothing, nothing is, makes sense, and it's not. It's all false. So I remember going to the theater and just thinking, these guys are so smart. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand some purpose and meaning in life if I go see these plays that are so profound, like Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill, or whatever. I'm going to learn. And, um, but I would always leave the theater frustrated because it, it just felt like it came so close to some sort of truth, but then just evaporated. And I, I was just frustrated all the time. And then the law of diminishing returns started to set in. You know, after, since high school, I was just doing these kind of fun, fabulous things. But then after a while you know, after, I don't know how long, 15, 20 years of it, I was like, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is, Peggy Lee? And so I just, uh, I started to, to not enjoy these things anymore. And it, it kind of came to a head in Paris in March of 2009. I used to go to fashion weeks in Paris and New York. And that, that fashion week, I went to a bunch of the shows. And a lot of the shows have after parties. And um, I was at this one after party in the middle of Paris at this club called Regine. And I was sitting with Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger. She was like a, she's like a fashion girl who has a, had her own TV show on Bravo. And we were sitting up on this deck and everyone was dancing on the dance floor. Everyone from the fashion world was, was at this party. Kanye West was there, every, like everyone. And I just, ha I remember I had this moment of total terror because I was drinking champagne and I looked out over the dance floor and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, this isn't gonna sustain me anymore. I've, this has worked for me for many, many years since high school. This has worked for me. It's not going to work anymore. And I ghosted the party, went back to the, my apartment that I had rented in the Marais. And I was up all night in a panic about my future. I'm like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And I, am I going to be put out to pasture in Palm Springs like all the other older gay men? Like, is that, <laughs> is that my fate? Like, <clears throat> what do I do? And so I got back to L.A. and I got busy with work again in production design, set design. And because uh, that's what I ended up becoming. And for 20 years, I was a production designer. And so I got super busy with work, sort of forgot about that night in Paris. And then six months later, my, I was at a coffee shop in Silver Lake in LA with my best friend who was gay. And we, we had this ritual every weekend where we, <laughs> we, it was the same thing. We would go to brunch in Venice. Then we would go shopping in West Hollywood or Beverly Hills, which is gay church, brunch and shopping. That's gay church, by the way. And then it really was. That was like our, our temple was Barney's New York. Um, or sax, whatever it was. Uh, and then 
we would go to this coffee shop called Intelligentsia. And that particular Sunday, we were just have casually having our cappuccinos and, you know, seeing friends we knew. But then suddenly we look over and there's a table next to us with five young people and there's physical Bibles on their table. I had never seen a Bible in public in LA and it was a shocking sight. <laughs> and my friend was culturally Jewish. I mean, he was Jewish. Um, and he loved to in kind of stir up controversial conversation. So he, he, he urged me to talk to them. And I was like, no, I'm not going to talk to them. And he kept prodding me, and finally I turned to them. And it's like a Christian's fantasy come true. It's like, hey, I'm a gay atheist. What's, tell me about the gospel. <laughs> What's Christianity? Um, and so that's exactly what I did. I said, hey, what's, what do you guys, are you Christians? And they said, yes. And I said, they said they were evangelical Christians. I said, well, what do you believe? Because I don't, I was raised Roman Catholic. I don't even remember, like, what's your faith? So they were very um, adept at explaining what their faith was, the hope that, for, you know, defending the faith. Um, and, and, uh, and then, of course, I get to, we talked for like an hour, and it was a really interesting talk, and they were very, very kind. And, of course, I get to the $64,000 question, and I say, well, what does your evangelical church in Hollywood believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. And I was like, okay. And I, I expected that answer especially in 2009. Now, not so much. But in 2009, that was, I expected them to say that. But what I was surprised at was my response, because 10 years before that, two years before that, I would have been like, you guys are insane, and I'm leaving now, and you guys need help. Um, but because of that night in Paris six months before, I was open to hearing something different. And I had this flash of what if God does exist? I mean, there's a slim chance he does. And what if homosexual behavior is wrong? And what if I've built my entire life on a false foundation and I don't know it? I mean, that's a possibility, right? It's, it is a possibility. And so they invited me to their church the following Sunday, and I said, you know, I— I don't know, just give me the address, I'll think about it. And I was, it was just like, it was too embarrassing to, to think about even going to this church. Not, not only was it embarrassing, but it was, it was a betrayal of my people, you know? And plus, if my friends, my other friends had found out, they would have just thought, you know, Beckett has lost his mind, like he's going to evangelical churches. Because with my friend group, like evangelicals were the enemy, they were like the worst kind of Christians, right? Um, and so, so the following Sunday, I had a whole week to think about it, and I kind of went back and forth. Yes, maybe I'll go. No, I don't want to go. Following Sunday, I wake up, and I'm like, I guess I'm going to do this. So I, I get, I drive to this. It felt like I was driven by a Tesla, because it just felt like the car just drove me to this church. <laughs> and um. It meets in a high school auditorium on Sunset Boulevard. And, 
and I, I was so used to kind of stained glass windows and bells and, and, and smoke and vestments and hats. So I, was, I, I just walked into this very plain auditorium, and I was like, wow, this is so nice. It's so, it's, I, li- I really appreciated that about it. And I walked in, I heard the Christian worship music. I was like, whoa, Christian music, I forgot that existed. And I was like, wait, but it's nice. It's really nice. And then I, I found a seat by myself. I sat on the fourth row on the aisle. And the pastor comes out, and he starts preaching on Romans chapter 7. He was in the middle of this whole series on Romans for two years. He, did, he, was, he took two years to go through Romans. And <clears throat> he came out, and he starts preaching for an hour on Romans. And as he's preaching— Strange things start to happen. Every word he's saying, every sentence he's saying is resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart, and I don't know why. I'm like, what is this guy saying? And I didn't want him to stop. I just wanted him to continue. And it was the first time I had heard the gospel and understood it in my entire life. And I was like, this is the gospel? This is good news. (laughs) And it turned everything I thought religion was on its head and, and then so he, after the sermon, he said, you know, there's people on the sides of the auditorium who can pray for you if you need prayer for anything. He leaves the stage. I have another moment. I'm like, should I go over there, get prayed for? If I do, the people who invited me here might be watching me, and it's just awkward. But I was like, whatever. So I walk over to this guy, and I said, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And he said, okay, can I, let me pray for you. And he laid his hands on me when that was still legal in California and prayed for me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and I just remember thinking, why does this random straight dude care about me so much? Why does he love me so much? Because his prayer was so loving. And I, I thanked him after the prayer. I went back to my seat. And I sat down, everyone else was standing, and there was another 25 minutes of worship music. And as soon as I sat down, that's when it all went down. The Holy Spirit just went, and it was like this road to Damascus moment. And God, uh, God, in my mind, God said, I'm God, Jesus is my son, heaven is real, hell is real, the Bible is true, welcome to my kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> this is This is the first time I went to the, my first time at church, right? Um and I was just I started bawling and bawling and bawling and I was like I I was so completely overwhelmed by God and Jesus and uh and I was, I was crying so hard that people around me were worried about me. They, they were going to call a medic because I was doubled over in pain. I was double, doubled over heaving. And I was crying over the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of the conviction of my sin, but also over the joy of meeting Jesus Christ and finally knowing the meaning of life. It was like, it was like the curtains had parted and I could see the truth. For the, for I could see the truth for the first time in my life, and it was amazing. And um, 
And so I got in my car after the service. I, got, I collected myself, went home, and it had happened again at home. It was crazy. I got into bed to take a nap because I was so freaked out. And, and uh, God was like, it was like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and, pass, and God passes by with his glory. God's like, let me show you some more of my glory. <laughs> I was like, whoa, God. And I burst into tears immediately, jumped out of my bed in the middle of my bedroom. I said, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. That's it. And... And I knew, I knew in that moment, I knew that homosexual behavior was wrong. I knew it was a sin. I knew that dating guys was no longer a part of my future, but I didn't care because I just met Jesus. And I was like, I'm going with that guy. Good riddance to that old life. And that was September 20th, 2009. I'm still in awe uh, about it. And I think of Paul when in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I, I count everything as loss, or I count everything thing as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I've lost, you know, over the years, I've lost lots of friends. My, all those friends that I had, pretty much lost them. And I lost my career. When my book came out in 2019, I lost my, <laughs> my career. I got dropped. I got blacklisted in Hollywood. And, um, but it, it's, all, it's all worth it. Jesus is worth it. Who cares about anything else? So now we're going we're gonna to answer some questions. The elephant in the room is the question that people have. Hey, uh, uh, by the way, how many of you in your extended family have somebody that's in the gay lifestyle? Just raise your hand. Check out those hands, right? Okay. So, I mean, it's, um, and this is always the conundrum, right, brothers and sisters? I love Jesus, I love this person, how do I build that bridge, right? That's the question we all have. And so Beckett, you know, he shared it earlier, so I just, I'm, I'm calling it Beckett's Rules, right? To reach, re, Beckett's Rules to reach your <laughs> gay friend. This is it. And so the first one is, love them generously. Uh, walk us through this in the experience of not only your family, Beckett, but uh, how, how how this kept the door open and didn't alienate you from yeah. your, your uh, Christian family and, and different Yeah, my, I mean, my parents were so, as I said, were so lovely. And my, uh, my siblings were a little more harsh and judgmental, I have to say. But um, mm. God love them. But <laughs> my, In the South, you just bless their heart. Bless their heart. <laughs> yeah, bless their heart. But my sister-in-law... And my mother, my, and my parents, but my sister-in-law was kind of a, a genius about this. She was an evangelical Christian. I knew where she stood on this issue. But every time I would go home to Dallas for the holidays, we would get together. She would talk about God. I would talk about guys. And not once over, you know, whatever, 20, 15, 20 years, not once did she say, Hey, Beckett, you know you're still sinning, right? She never once said that. Instead, what she did was love me generously. Let me hold that water. Yeah, I know. This thank is like, you. thank you. Um, she loved me generously, and she, she prayed for me for 20 years, and she prayed this specific verse over me, Acts 26, 18, 
when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he's telling King Agrippa what God has sent him to do to preach to the Gentiles. He says to, to preach to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and to, to, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hmm. So she prayed for me for years and years and years. And my, and my siblings prayed for me too, my parents. But I just found this, my sister-in-law just found this letter, another sister-in-law found this letter in a box a couple months ago from my mother. And it's a prayer, it's a letter that she typed to God. It's a prayer, it's called a prayer for Beckett. And it's like a list of all of her prayer points. To, and I didn't even know. When I, when I read this letter two months ago, I just was sobbing. I was like, oh my gosh. I because my mother never, she never once, again, my mother, or and my father, they never, over the years, they never said, hey, Beckett, you're, you're sinning, right? They never said that. They they just, um, they just quietly prayed. And my mother, I'll just read you the first point of her prayer. She said, she says, deal aggressively with the enemy, come against him in the all-powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And my mother, this is the thing, my parents knew that this was a spiritual battle. They, they knew that they couldn't, like, convince me to stop being gay. It needed to be a supernatural th moment from the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so that, that was so brilliant about my, my family. And, uh, and that's how Jesus is in the gospel. You know, Jesus, when he's, when he's uh, you know, dining with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, he's, he loves them generously, but he's always calling them to repentance. So it's, it's always this balance of grace and truth. It's, and Jesus was, of course, the master of that balance. Yeah. It's hard to get it right. With, it, it uh, we so get it. We, it's hard we, for us to get it right. We're kind of clumsy. We're so clumsy. We're clumsy. Clumsy and, Christians. Exactly. And, and you, you shared that, and this is my observation, and then I want you to share on it a little bit, is I've known families that are, are wonderful Christians that really believe the authority of the scriptures and God's uh, um, clarity about sexuality, mm -hmm. but then they have a son or a daughter that comes out and they're gonna be in a trans or whatever and that the, the parents all of a sudden flip and now they've gotta be the defenders. Gay affirming. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's this last point that you shared with us last service and that is love them generously, pray for them constantly, don't become indoctrinated. Share about yeah, that. Yeah, um, that's what my friend Rosaria Butterfield, she says that. She says, you know, stay connected to your child as much as you can but never become indoctrinated by the, the ideology. And I see that too happen, I've seen it so many times mm -hmm. where a child comes out to the parent and the, I get it. I mean, I, I'm not a parent, so it's, it's hard for me to fully understand mm -hmm. it, but I get that you want to love your child. You love your child so much, you just want to do whatever you can to make them feel comfortable and better. Um, and so I see that happen a lot where parents cave to this, to the ideology and become gay affirming. And that's, that seems like it's loving, it seems like it's helping, but it's actually not. It's actually very unloving because eternity is at stake. This is an eternal issue. 
And so the loving thing to do is to say, hey, and it's very, it's, it's very simple but complex. It is. It's simple because it's just like, hey, these, I actually believe in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe the Word of God is true. But, and by the way, all the people who try to, the revisionists who try to say that the, 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 the homosexuality is not really a sin in the Bible— it's such nonsense. I can't. Even, I, I would. I would need an hour to explain that. But it's absolute, utter nonsense. Um, I. I. Yeah. We could spend hours on that. But. Um, so it's it's so important to, to say yeah. I actually believe in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. But I still love you. I love you as my son and my or my daughter. I I absolutely love you and would do anything for you. But I love you so much that I'm not going to lie to you and say that this is no longer a sin somehow. And because that's like actually, you know, so you're leading someone down a path of destruction. You really are. I mean, the, it's, it's the balance of the truth in love. Yeah. Because truth without love is brutal. It's brutality. Like you can just go after somebody with truth. Yeah. But it's, if it, and love without truth is hypocrisy. It's this syrupy, I love, and you're loving them right into destruction. Yeah. And I, I find that, um, and you, you said this about, and I had a better relationship with my brother in this regard that my mom became the defender of my brother, right, in his, in his uh, gay lifestyle. And I would hug him and, and share, I mean, only when he would bring it up because he would want to talk about it. I mean, I wouldn't touch it, right? I just love him. And he'd bring it up, well, and he calls me Ricky. Please don't call Rick me Ricky. None of you. <laughs> but my name is officially Ricky. And he's like, now, Ricky, I know the Bi what the Bible says. Just like what you said. You expect evangelical Christians to have this perspective. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I know what you think, and, but I'm just born that way. I'm, you know, it's all these things. And I'd say, Randy, you know I love you like crazy. That's not true. And uh, we would go just round and round and round and round. But it was so funny because Tammy, my wife, could tell him all the exact same things and he would agree all day long. You're so right, Tammy. You're so, and it used to irk me to no end. I would look yeah. at, we're driving home and I'm shaking my head. I'm like, I said all the exact same things. She said, yeah, but you say things with an intense look on your face, right? So it's a brother thing. We had a brother, you know, dynamic going on. By the way, just to the born this way thing, I, I just yeah. want to address yeah. that because that's, that's, I mean, that's the mantra of the it culture. It is, it is. And whether, okay, so no one knows why a person becomes same-sex attracted, whether it's genetic, hormonal, in utero, or environmental. Um, no one, no scientist knows the answer to that question. But it's a moot point. It doesn't matter because we're all, not only are we born in sin, we're conceived in sin. So even our genetic coding is corrupted by sin. Yep. So yeah, if a scientist, if, the New York Times says, the headline is, scientist discovers gay gene. I'd be like, so what? <laughs> it's corrupted by sin. And so the idea of kind of like, oh, I was born this way. So it's, it's all human. We're all born with sinful, innate impulses. Amen. That doesn't mean we are to act on those impulses. So the born this way argument is, is a completely, it's a red herring. Yeah, and I share with people, hey, you may not be HIV positive, but you and I are both SIN positive. So you, we have this virus. 
right? It's the sin virus. And so when, when people, you know, they, they try, I was just like, hey, all of us have your, sin manifests itself in each individual in different yeah. inclin, inclinations. Yeah. And so, um, hey, what, what's the time, guys, on the, my clock? Can you put it up here? Because I don't. It's 12.20. It's 12.20. Okay. Um, so we talked about that. And, and so how in this age, Beckett, tell us a little bit about <laughs> the hate that you've experienced now that you've stepped out because you are the pariah now <laughs> of all the, you know what I mean? When, yeah. you, when you make this stand, you lose all these friends, but you gain a whole bunch of new friends, right? You've got yeah. a whole room of new friends here, but we would have been your friends before also. You know, be, like yeah. I, had, I have friends that are in that place. And uh, I had two lesbians that came to our church for about three months and it freaked everybody in the church out because they were, they were quite, they showed a lot of uh, PDA uh, public affection on the front row. They're not Christians. They're coming to, they're looking for the meaning of life. Yeah. And I said, we let the meth addict come. We let the, I mean, there's half of you are in heterosexual sins, shocked up with your girlfriends. Repent, knock it off. <laughs> and it's just, it's not as glaring. Cut it out. Right, cut it out, right? <laughs> and and I, I told them, you guys back off. We let, I said, there's gonna come, they're gonna have the come to Jesus conversation. Yeah. And, and I built a relationship with these two girls. And one day we had that, they came and they were broken because of some uh, substance abuse. And we ended up at that conversation. Yeah. And I just said, this is the simplicity and the complexity. This is God's plan. Yeah. You can repent if you want to and come to Jesus or you can choose this lifestyle. And they looked at each other and gave each other a big kiss and said, we choose each other and not Jesus. Said, well, you made your decision. I still love you, but you've made your decision. Yeah. They left church. They've never worked back. Everywhere in town when I'd see them, they're like, hey, Pastor Rick. Because I just loved them, shared the truth. They yeah. made, it's self-selection. You, you can't force anybody. They made their decision. Yeah. And you can build a relationship with mutual respect and, and kindness and still share the truth. It's a fine balance. Yeah. So. yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. Any parting words for these people as you are experiencing this, this, the backlash and, and just end on that point? Because you can't stand, because there might be somebody that, hey, I want to make that stand that Becca does. God's been working in my life. I'm afraid of losing all my friends, Becca. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because the culture is like, be you, be true to yourself, be who you are, be authentic, except if you're Christian, don't do that. Yeah, uh, don't. they may you not. can't do that. So it's funny because I'm actually, you know, I'm actually my true self now because I'm in Christ. I'm yeah. actually, I'm actually, the, it's funny because my, my friend, I was in one of my friends who's a photographer, she's very big in the business and she, but she did this, uh, she's in, she lives in New York and she, did this coffee table book called The Authentics. And she photographed all these like super fabulous people all over the world, you know, in Europe and, and New York and LA. And, um, and in, in kind of like in their homes and their lives and how fabulous their lives are. And I was like, Melanie, you know, I'm the most authentic person you know. <laughs> it was like, why, why am I not in your book? Um, and so it's just funny because, but Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, um, because, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of my old friends uh, are not very pleased with me, <laughs> especially because I'm so vocal about it. They're not happy about it. 
But, you know, Jesus says things like, uh, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, which has happened a lot to me, which, is, which utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets and were before, who were before you. So it's like Jesus doesn't promise an easy road. In fact, he's, he promises persecution. He said, they're going to hate you because they hated me first. Mm-hmm. And he's, but, he, but we're blessed if, because if, we're, if we're persecuted, we're blessed. And, we, and by the way, heavenly rewards, for your reward is great in heaven. The thing about heavenly rewards is they're eternal, which is kind of amazing. So um, I don't really, <laughs> you know, I miss, I miss a lot of my old friends, but yeah. as you said, I gained so many new friends in right. the body of Christ. And it's like, it's ama- it's like, like I'm actually related to all of you. We're brothers and sisters Amen. in Christ. Amen. We're related. Yeah. Amen. By the blood of Christ. So we, you know, you shared that you used to go to Drew Barrymore's house all the time, swim in her swimming pool. Is she going to have you on our new program? You think she's going to? I don't to, you think, think she uh, will. Drew's going to give Drew, you a call? I know. I was just thinking about her the other day, and I was like, <laughs> I don't think Drew would have me on her show. Becca I'm, Cook, like, the authentic self. Yeah. <laughs> here to share with you from my swimming pool to offend the world. I know. Yeah, just a lot. Yeah. Uh, it was because uh, when I got first got saved, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be so easy." My friends are—they know me so well. We've been friends for so long; they're just going to like all come to Christ immediately. But I didn't realize it was a little more difficult than that. Yes, a have, couple have come. A couple yeah, have. I was wondering: have a few of those? Any of those that came from uh, yeah. you know, back east and your, your yeah, childhood? like a two. In fact, one guy who, two guys who came came out of the homosexual life and are now Christians wow. from my past and uh, my old friends and a, a couple other people have become Christians. Uh, and no, maybe like five, five people have become Christians from my past, which what has been blessing. amazing to see. That's yeah. amazing. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I just like, I so want people to experience the living God. I mean, what else Amen. is better Amen. than that? Hello. Yes. And to have a relationship with, with, God through Christ and to, to be reconciled to God and to have eternal life, which is kind of a big deal, right? It's, I think it's, it's a, a big little deal. bit of a bonus. You and I think it's a big deal, right? Yeah, it's kind of nice. It's hard to understate that. I right? know. This is a short window. This is forever, you know. I can't believe for, I mean, for so, for 42 years, I was just blithely unaware that I was headed to hell. I mean, like for eternity. I mean, that's crazy to yeah. me. I just startling. I, startling. As we wrap it up, you guys, the prayer team is going to be down here. Maybe some of these things, the Lord is speaking to your heart and you need prayer today. And you're wrestling with these things internally because, you know, uh, we, we have this complex fallen nature that's constantly wanting to break out and sin deceives us. Yeah. Sin, you know, I mean, it, it, we want to believe the wrong things so that we can go the wrong direction. And so maybe you need prayer. Uh, please don't leave today without that happening. And um, Beckett's going to be back there at his book table. You can get one of these books. It'll be a tremendous blessing. On behalf of all the congregation and your family, we want to thank you, thank Beckett. You. What a joy thank to have you. What a, what a treasure. Thank Amen. you, Ricky. Amen. We're just going to pray for Beckett. The Lord just continues to use his life in such a powerful way. Lord, we thank you for what you have done and are doing in Beckett's life. 
We just ask for your anointing, for your encouragement, for your strength, for your refreshment, for your blessing. Lord, just open doors right and left. Give him opportunities to be that voice for you, Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, you're alive and well, and you're with us right now. Thank you that we believe in your resurrection power to transform our broken, hurting lives into lives that are filled with your abundant life of love, joy, and peace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for beckoning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. light in the darkness, I won't hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh. Now I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking. I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa,